WWL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On the show today, we hear how the saltwater wedge moving up the Mississippi River may cause some Louisiana residents to panic by water. We'll also hear from the author of a new book on black quarterbacks in the NFL. But first... Election Day, October 14th, is almost here, and there's more than just a ballot full of candidates running for office. The city of New Orleans has three separate items for voters to consider that will affect their lives. Every election, the Bureau of Governmental Research takes a close look at what's on the ballot and recommends whether to vote yes or no. And to help us prepare, I'm joined by the president and CEO of BGR, Rebecca Mowbray. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Robert. Let's start with the one I've been hearing the most about. It's a property tax renewal for New Orleans school facilities. The district's been stumping pretty hard about this. 89 brand new renovated and refurbished school buildings were brought to life after Hurricane Katrina. Let's work together to protect those investments for our scholars for generations to come. We don't know if they'll... So, Becky, what what do voters need to know about this? As you mentioned, there has been a tax in place since 2014 that has provided for the maintenance of all those new school buildings that were built after Hurricane Katrina. The proposal that's on the ballot on October 14th would renew the current rate of a tax of up to 4.97% mills for another 20 years to cover the maintenance of school buildings. Um, The renewal would take effect in 2025, and it would run until the end of 2044. The tax this year is projected to generate about $23 million, and the, the money that goes to maintain schools is a combination of this property tax and then also a portion of uh, sales tax that the school has, school board has, of about 1.5%. So what this millage is, is it's not new. It's a renewal, correct? It's a renewal. That's right. That's right. People are already paying this. This would just renew it for 20 years. Because if you think about it, you know, in the buildings that were built after Hurricane Katrina, as they start to get older, they're going to need replacements of their heating and cooling systems, their roofs, and, you know, the major components that start to get really expensive. And for BGR, what's the verdict? Yes or no? It's yes. Uh, We supported this one. Um, We took a look at the needs and the money that's available, and we felt like it really is necessary to continue this millage to pay for the upkeep of school buildings so that they don't fall into disrepair. Mm-hmm. Next, we have an amendment to the city's charter proposed by the city council. Right now, when the city responds to blight, things like that dilapidated properties, overgrown lots, and we have a lot of those, Uh, It's done through a division of code enforcement. The council argues the city needs a new standalone department. Uh, Why and what does BGR think? So we also supported this one. Um, What our code enforcement functions are in practice is just a bunch of different functions um, from different departments and offices 
And so as a result, there's really very little accountability um, and the money comes from different sources, which means that it's very difficult to track how much we're actually spending on enforcing legal codes and remediating blight. Um, and so there's a lot of operational problems, budgeting problems, accountability problems, and just basic transparency issues for the public with the way it is now. So what this charter change proposal aims to do is consolidate the code enforcement functions in one department that would be created in the city charter. And that department would have a real leader and its own staff and its own budget code so you could um, track how much money is being spent on it. And again, BGR is a yes on this one? Yes, um, we, we supported it. It makes all the sense in the world. And um, there we, we couldn't think of any reason not to do it. It will just strengthen accountability and uh, give more ways for the public to, to track what's happening with blight and to make sure that we're funding blight remediation adequately. But we do, you know, the, the department in of itself will not take care of blight on its own. I mean, this gives it a good start, but the city council is still going to need to make sure that there's enough money allocated to it for this new department to perform its duties. And um, there are also other things that would need to be worked out about fines and fees. There's also another proposition, also from the city council. This one would require the mayor to submit the city's budget for council approval a month earlier than the mayor does now, doubling the amount of time council members have to review and adopt it. It essentially gives the mayor less time and the council more time. What, what's the rationale behind this? Well, um, the city right now doesn't have much time to review the budget. Um, currently, there's a deadline that the budget has to be submitted by November 1st and approved by December 1st. So that's only a month. And what BGR did is that we looked at other peer cities and we found that 75% of the other cities that we looked at gave their councils at least another two weeks to look at um, the proposal, uh, to look at budget proposals. So what this would do is it would move the start of the budget season up to October 1st. And so you'd have two months um, for everybody to go over the budget. And it's our hope that uh, the council and the administration and the public and the media could all do a deeper dive because there's more time to talk about the issues that exist. I should note that while it would require the administration to submit the proposed budget to the city council sooner, it's not a zero-sum game. The administration actually supports this because they feel like it would give them a head start, like they would simply start earlier in preparing it, and they feel like they would have fewer last-minute questions um, and that there would be, you know, just better budget deliberation on all sides if everyone had more time. And again, the BGR position on this one? Same thing. We supported it. We couldn't really think of a reason not to support it. There are many other communities. Most other communities have longer than we do to vet the um, proposed budget, and we think it could make a real difference in the quality of our budgeting process. However, just like with the code enforcement one, passing this measure in of itself would not 
take care of everything, um, the council and the administration would need to use the time wisely and have thoughtful deliberation about the budget, um, you know, for the, the process to improve. And get along a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. We would like to see them get along. Rebecca Mowbray, President and CEO of the Bureau of Governmental Research. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bob. It was a pleasure being with you. You can read more all about these three proposition on BGR's website. And for our listeners in Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge has a 3.13 millage tax renewal for emergency medical services. A yes vote would support renewing the millage for 10 years to fund emergency medical services through 2034. The saltwater wedge is moving up the Mississippi River. From Plaquemines Parish north, people are already preparing to deal with salinity. Governor John Bell Edwards has declared a state of emergency. He's asked President Biden for help. With the daily drumbeat in all the media of the saltwater wedge, it may seem odd to ask, what causes people to panic by? Officials have said don't hoard water, but many are already doing that. What can be done to give us pause, to collect ourselves and look with clarity at a situation? Joining us is Dr. Nina Cleveland, adjunct professor of emergency and security studies at Tulane University School of Professional Advancement. Nina, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Nina, we're hearing anecdotal stories of people uh, hoarding water. Even though the wedge is likely a month away from New Orleans, what is making people react this way? What makes them panic by? So kind of the root of it is fear of scarcity, and it can have huge psychological impacts on individuals, and it can spread to groups of people. Consumer behavior and social science research kind of indicate that people's panic levels are impacted by the level of anxiety they feel, especially if they feel uncertain about how scarce something may be. This can be exacerbated through social media as well, especially when you are getting inaccurate information. We have leaders who have told us, don't panic, we'll have enough water, but people still do it. Is that messaging the best way to say this? Is there any way that could we could say this better? When you look at messaging, I think the bigger issue is getting information out there early, making sure it's accurate, um, making sure, and this is, goes to relationship building and trust building within the community, that it needs to start there. We're not getting the messages right before things are happening, right? So that also gives us kind of the feel that, okay, our, you know, people are aware of the issue, people are addressing the issue. And we have, I mean, honestly, we have lots in place to help the community through different crises, right? But that that message needs to get out there early, making sure it's accurate and making sure it's available in all different avenues, you know, social media, print media, you know, news outlets, because not all people get their messages in the same way. The response people are having to perhaps overbuying or panic buying are typically from people who have the means to do so. They can afford to go out and buy great quantities of things. How does their actions further put economically disadvantaged people at risk? 
during any disaster and crisis, the economically disadvantaged are always more vulnerable. When people panic buy or purchase and they are creating more scarcity. And, you know, sometimes this can drive prices up. And for those who lack means to purchase, they may not have the option to buy what they need, much less cash those supplies. Uh, it also means that they have less capacity to recover after the crisis and that there's not a lot available, made available to them. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, during COVID, those of us who were responding in that in public health, we had to make sure that we went out into the community so that people with mobility issues or transportation issues or things like that had access to the vaccine as well. So, you know, we call that pushing out. There's also an individual component in thinking about, okay, how do I take care of myself and my family and not be a part of the problem? You know, and how can I be a part of the solution? What does emergency preparedness tell us about what people can do in the next couple of days to feel ready for the potential emergency ahead? For us individually, we need to stay well informed and make sure the information we get is accurate. Um, Just because you see it on social media, you really need to check your and verify sources. And then ask yourself, is this something that I really need to do? Being well informed goes to reducing some of that fear and anxiety. One really good trusted source I want to put out there is the um, New Orleans Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. They have an outstanding website full of resources, and I know they are staying up to date on this. That is a really good trusted source for people as we go through this. Dr. Nina Cleveland, Adjunct Professor of Emergency and Security Studies at Tulane University School of Professional Advancement. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. It's football season which many New Orleanians are well aware of, as the Houdat Nation are already packing the city's bars on Sunday afternoons dressed in black and gold. While more than half of NFL players are black, a statistic that's remained the same for years, 2023 was the first year two black starting quarterbacks faced off at the Super Bowl. But why did it take more than 100 years of NFL history to get there? That's the subject of John Eisenberg's new book, Rocket Men the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. The Gulf States newsroom's Joseph King sat down to talk to Eisenberg about the grueling journey of black players and coaches in the league. All right, I want to start off right here, really from the beginning. You've written books about baseball, football, and I saw even Equestrian. Uh, What inspired you specifically to write this book focused on the black quarterback? I remember going to the uh, Winter Olympics Uh, In Calgary, we're going back here, but like 1988, and there was a great black figure skater, Debbie Thomas. She wound up winning, I think, a bronze medal. And uh, so I just wrote columns about her. She was an incredibly graceful person to talk to and a great athlete. And I wrote about her. So I come back from that, and I've gotten horrible mail from just racist mail from people for me, you know, picking on her because she's black, picking on me. I'm Jewish and and just awful stuff. And if that doesn't get your attention, nothing does. 
that will teach you, you know, it's the importance of shining a light on stuff. And uh, what I'm what I'm trying to do with it is shine a light on the fact that th something happened in the NFL, and for decade after decade, black quarterbacks could not get on the field, and and the reason was just pure racist ideology, denial by stereotype, and it, it happened until more recently than people realize. And so my goal with this book was to put it out there and to say, you know, let's let's not quibble about any facts here. Here are your facts. Uh, why the title Rocket Men? Where did you get inspiration for that? Number one, uh, I thought it, I used it as a compliment. Uh, Lamar Jackson, uh, Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, the young guys that are coming into the league, all, all you got to do is watch them play football and say, well, they're Rocket Men, all right. You know, they certainly have amazing skills and NFL's never really seen guys like that. But I also wanted to use it as an homage to the guys that didn't get a chance. This is a story of opportunity, and it's oppor uh, opportunity denied for many decades, and then finally opportunity granted uh, by a white establishment. It's really important uh, to understand that there were guys that just, all they lacked was the opportunity. They had the talent. And so uh, they were rocket men in their own way. You know, many times black quarterbacks were told they weren't ideal quarterbacks for the NFL for a number of reasons, you know. Uh, but why do you think the bar was higher for them? You go back to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the, the NFL is an entirely white establishment. The, the owners, still the case, uh, coaches back then, all white, general managers, all white. And coming out of that era, the 50s and the 60s, there was a distinct lack of trust. Uh, they trusted black athletes had started to do that uh, coming out of that era when the league was segregated and they reintegrated. However, by that point, football had modernized. Offenses were getting sophisticated. There was a lot of passing and changing plays at the line. The playbook was getting fat. And uh, these coaches just said, we, we don't, you know, I'm not sure a black quarterback can handle the, the load mentally. That's what they believed. Uh, can he lead? Can he be a leader? Develop, can he come through in the clutch? All this stuff that was just just racist, uh, you know, ideology uh, based on nothing because none of them had played and uh, had a chance to prove that it was wrong. Did any other players or coaches who played in Alabama, Louisiana, or Mississippi assist you with getting this story out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, the guys that coming out of the South, uh, uh, T. Martin, uh, and he played at the University of Tennessee and won a national championship there. It succeeded Pey Peyton Manning. Uh, he would be one. Doug Williams, of course, needless to say, you know, the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl from uh, Zachary, Louisiana. So, uh, you know, certainly uh, th those two stand out to me. James, James Harris, uh, who I, you know, I, you mentioned uh, and I, is in my introduction. He gave me just an incredible interview. And, you know, he's from he's from the Louisiana as well. What did the older players you interviewed think about the state of things today? I, they certainly wish they were making the money that today's players were. Uh, that goes without saying. But they think about the guys that didn't make it. Uh, okay, from uh, Alabama, Conridge Holloway. Okay, is a player, went to high school in Alabama. And, uh, you know, we're going back into the 70s. And uh, was, uh, I believe, the fourth pick in the baseball draft one year. Incredible athlete. And, uh, you know, Bear Bryant told him there's not going to be a black quarterback at Alabama. I think this would be 1970, uh, around there. 
And so he goes to Tennessee, and he's the first black starting quarterback in the SEC. The, the quarterbacks from that era say, guys, Conridge Holloway in today's football would have been lights out. It's perfect for him. However, uh, in 1975, I think when he was eligible for the draft, he went in the last round as a defensive back and went to Canada because he wasn't going to play quarterback in the NFL. I saw uh, you mentioned Ozzie Newsom too. I know he's not a quarterback, but yeah, anything specifically that he did? He was a quarterback as a kid in Muscle Souls, Alabama, and he tells the story of how he went to camp. Uh, he, went, he went to tryouts. I think it was eighth grade. He was already a good athlete. He goes to tryouts, and the quarterbacks are lined up in one place, and the receivers are lined up in another line, and he has to make a decision. He decided not to play quarterback, even though that's what he'd always played on the sandlot. He didn't want to do it because he knew. He knew what was going on. It's like, well, I'm a big, strong kid. I'm, I'm, you know, I might be able to go somewhere in this sport, but if I'm a quarterback, I'm going to have to change positions. They're going to make me change positions. It's going to be a hard road, so I'm not going to play that position. And he became a receiver and uh, uh, a tight end and wound up playing at Alabama and then uh, going to the Cleveland Browns, and he's in the Hall of Fame as a player. It's crazy. You know, you mentioned, you know, going trying to get moved to receiver. That happened recently with even Lamar Jackson, like at the draft combine, you know, asking him, like, where he played receiver. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm a quarterback. And he was a Heisman Trophy winner. Heisman Trophy winner, and uh, second year in the league, he's, he's in league MVP. But uh, that's part of the reason I wrote the book, to be honest with you. You go back to the beginning of asking me why. I'm in Baltimore, and uh, you know Lamar landed here sort of right in front of me, uh, or I've written tons of sports forever, and I'm aware of that history. And it's just incredible to me that we're almost talking about 100 years of NFL football and people are still hearing that stuff. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where that is still going on? And uh, I do think it's changed even in the last five years. I think things are changing for the better. But Lamar, he heard it and he's got a chip on his shoulder as a result. The season just started. NFL season just started. And opening week, we saw 14 starting black quarterbacks. What's changed in the NFL to get us to this moment? 2011, here's the draft that, that comes. You have Cam Newton and you have Colin Kaepernick come into the league that, that year. The next year, Russell Wilson, Robert Griffin III. Somewhat cut out of the same mold. They were big, they were fast, they were smart, they could throw, they were high draft picks for a reason. And the NFL finally, finally said it. We should not try to turn them into the next Tom Brady. That's not going to work. We, we're not going to make them change and possibly set them up to fail. What we're going to do is change how we play offense. We're going to change this position. We're going to allow them uh, to be more mobile. We're going to use what they bring to the table and emphasize it. And in the long run, that really changed the position. John Eisenberg is the author of the new book, Rocky Man. The black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. John, again, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate the time, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, Rebecca Mowbray, Executive Director of the Bureau of Governmental Research, Dr. Nina Cleveland, Adjunct Professor of Emergency and Security Studies at Tulane University, 
Joseph King, sports and culture reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, and John Eisenberg, author of Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.